I want to die. I feel like I'm in that, uh, wait, what is that? What is that? The world is a pandemonium. That's very hot. Yes. I don't know. It's I'm wherever it's hot. Welcome everybody to Fate of Mates. Elmer, <laughs> <laughs> you guys, we've never recorded in summer and you are about to get a scene with me. <laughs> See, I'm all like, you guys, listen, we're having a very different experience because right now I actually have a fleece blanket on myself. That's insane. I just want to die. I want to. I want to turn on, and I can't have the air conditioner on in my window. It is so. It's the first day of heat in New York City, which is always like it sneaks up on me, and I'm never prepared. <laughs> and the weather in New York in the summer is just awful. And it's 85 degrees here, and we have window air conditioners because we live in a building that was built in like 1890 something. That's not hyperbole. And. So we have these window air conditioners, and my window air conditioner in my office is directly behind my microphone. Sure. And I so have loud. been told <laughs> no, by <Yeah>. Eric, <laughs> you may not run the air conditioner while you record. So the next four months are going to be me sweating <laughs> and being miserable in your ear holes. You're going to have to, like, <laughs> we're going to be, like, recording in the middle of the night or something. Like, you're going to call me and be like, it's no. 62 right now. Let's do it. I have this really beautiful back garden, and when the sun goes down, it's still hot, but at least it's breezy back there. I think I should just record outside. Sure. <laughs> Everybody will just be like, and for three months out of the year, Sarah records outside. <laughs> so the LaGuardia approach, the neighborhood sure. dogs. The dogs. You'll, it'll all be fine. It'll just be, it'll be, it'll add nice, like, ambiance. You know what we can call it? Faded mates al fresco. <laughs> oh, Yay. <laughs> You can have it with like a a, a side of barbecue and, and some a glass corn. of rosé. <laughs> um, okay, everyone, it's faded. You know meats. what? That's actually perfect because up in sky they don't have fucking roofs, so they don't because they're above the clouds. Which it's cold up there, you guys. I don't understand. It has to be cold. They're hidden. It's a hidden like world above the clouds. They also don't have hot showers, so clearly they're it's monsters. It's miserable up there. It's, it's terrible. It really is some bullshit, for it's sure. It's dark sky week, you guys. We just have one more book we have to get through before we get to Sweet Ruin. <laughs> and and that's not really a fair way of saying this, because I actually enjoy Dark Sky more than I usually do on this reread. Um, but it is not my fave. I I think I like it. Yeah, better than most people do. I liked it. I yeah. Although sure. I've got some issues, but we'll talk. I just think Thanos or Thronos Thronos. Thronos. Not Thanos. That's a different thing. I think Thronos should get the hell over himself. Is frankly how I feel about this whole book. Yeah. Even though, I mean, like, what happened is terrible. So let's get into it. I know that people have asked that we do the we go back to recaps. So do we want to do a quick recap? Yeah, but You're here's like, I'm no, like, I don't okay, but you know that. what? I actually had a a good idea was like just read the like just read the synopsis from the back of the book oh, or whatever, God, like the no. blurb. Nobody wants no? that. No, all first right. of all, Cressley will hate it if it happens that way because I mean I don't think sure. Cressley's okay. listening. Hey, Cressley, if you are, <laughs> hey, I'm standing right, on the side of authors right now. Hey, authors, <laughs> everyone out there listening, nobody right. wants to hear their cover copy read online. No right, one does. Fair enough. Okay. All <laughs> so right. So I get to I, be let, in charge. <laughs> okay. Then do you want me to do it or do you want to do it? I'm happy to do it. Okay. You should um, do it. Because we're back to Torture Island again. 
we sure fucking are. Like, it's, it's like Groundhog's Day, Torture Island. It's I so know. Long. I had totally forgotten that we were back on Torture Island. Yeah. So just to recap, because we're going all over the place now. We did McGreeve, and then we did The Professional. So that's why it feels like it's been forever since we were sure. on anything. But well, we're on Torture Island. We are returned to Torture Island at the start of Dark Sky, where, and it is, the, it's like, everybody's just broken out. The, like, queen of stonework is, like, building a mountain in the middle of Torture Island. Everyone's dying. Um, and uh, Caro is running through the tunnels with Malcolm and Ruby. And we've got Melanthe still collared with her no powers collar. Um captured on the way out by Thronos who is a reckoner mm-hmm. and has been after her we know since at least Kiss of the Demon King yeah. and long 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 before that yeah. so we are set up but the setup is really great it's childhood best friends slash lovers to enemies to lovers so um and where the setup is uh thronos knows that melanthe is his fated mate he like knows instantly kind of when he sees her as a child they have this like really beautiful childhood friendship that is clearly like turned to love and they have these like magnificent moments inside his wings he's a winged demon um we haven't seen wings before um, so, like, I have this real vision of him, of him as, like, old school Lucifer, like, just with, like, those massive, like, pointed wings. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna lie, I'm here for it, which will surprise <laughs> absolutely no one who has read my Scandal and Scout, no, my What the Hell book is it? <laughs> my Rules of Scoundrel series. I have a, I really like a fallen angel. Um, and <laughs> I really do a lot. Um, and so we've got, and then... Cut to, what, 500 years later, and here we are, and he's finally, um, oh, well, no, we didn't say, um, the Reckoners and the Sorcerer are mortal enemies. Oh, yeah. Um, and when his family discovers that his, he's been, like, clandestinely seeing this Sorcerer girl, they come for the Sorcerer. And Melanthe, who is queen of persuasion and is able to persuade anybody in the world to do whatever she asks them to do, um, is so enraged when his father kills her parents that she tells him to leap from the window down, like, into, like, a cliff, like, off a cliff, essentially, and not use his wings to fly. And he crashes to the bottom of this ravine broken his body is broken and he never heals i mean like parts of him the bones set but everything is still broken one of the things um that's really interesting to me about this book is and we're gonna we have a special guest who's gonna join us at the end of this episode our friend um samantha jackson who is a um a uh i don't think she's published yet but she's been working on some romances and she is very interested in um, like religion and Christianity and how it plays out in romance. And I think we're going to talk to her about some of this stuff because what was really interesting to me this time around was um, 
how biblical this felt, right? Oh, it's so religious. It's, it's wild. so religious, yeah. And Kate Claiborne talks about it being like Paradise Lost, right? Like Milton's Paradise Lost, um, which I have read only bits and pieces of in like a million years ago. But I think even just the our um, like sort of pop culture knowledge of 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 Paradise Lost is yeah. enough to sort of see those those yes. ties and those connections. Well, I mean, there is such an echo because so I have read Paradise Lost more recently because I uh, wrote uh, the Rules of Scoundrels series, and the first book is about basically the fall of Lucifer. It's a romance novel, but imagine the devil is the hero. <laughs> And that's the that's a kind of like by Paradise Lost too, though, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> so, um, and there's like a party that happens at the Fallen Angel, the casino in that series every year, and it's called Pandemonium. Like, and so the kind of echoes. I was sort of I was very surprised actually by how many echoes I built into my historical series, and Cressley is now building into this um, paranormal series that are related to. Um, Paradise Lost and Milton and I would just add that Pandemonium we are about to that is about to be a very important place in the series yeah so yeah um, I think we're just again seeing we're about to move into the Moriora movement of the series and Mm -hmm. um, we and Cressley is clearly laying a lot of brickwork here for that I yeah. think also because I think also this feels so religious because I actually believe that you and I have talked that we think or- Orion, who is the he- the head of the Morior, we have not met any of the Morior for those of you who are reading along and have never read before, but I'm going to just sort of tease this. Jen and I have gone back and forth about whether or not we believe that Orion is sort of a, is like God. Right. The, right. the king of like the sort of head of the gods. The primordial god. The primordial god, if you will. Yeah, perfect. That's perfect. So um, that would make sense that we're sort of, now we're starting to look at like religious, there being sort of religious archetypes in this series. I think it's really interesting on a, in a week where um, like evangelical like sort of fever dreams of crushing all of like women and poor people down into the earth where they belong um reading thronos was very hard for me this time around i found his sort of um his righteousness and his right like it even more so now in today's like kind of what's going on in the world today i you know when i read this a year ago i was like man what a jerk but this week i was like whoa and and so it makes sense that someone who is so tied to his um like a it's really interesting because he doesn't talk a lot about god but he talks a lot about what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Capital R, capital yes. W. And it's really interesting because it's it's like religious, but not um, like faithful, which I thought was just like a really interesting. Um, I don't know. Like I, I thought and then, of course, of course, he would have to go on a religious journey, right? Like they go to hell, they go to heaven. They're literally in like the belly of the whale, like Jonah, right? Yeah. It's a, there's a lot going on. Well, and let's also just lay it out there that this isn't just Paradise Lost and biblical. This is also Inferno. Literally yes. like Dante's. This is the, yes. the end. Um, Melanthe is 
Beatrice. Like she moves, she she actually guides him. She's literally creating these portals, like yes, into other places um, for him. So. Yeah, I mean, so I, and and then it's also, like, really fascinating because then it's got this mix of, like, good old-fashioned science fiction, right? Like, there's dragons and, you know, the whole idea, it, it, it's, a like, a bunch of 80s movies, right? Like, they reference Time Bandits. It feels like Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's, right, like, it really feels like an, um, one of my, um, you know that I love Ulysses. And when you read Ulysses, you don't really ever read Ulysses by itself by James Joyce. You like have this like companion book you or you have along with it, which is called Ulysses Annotated. Mm-hmm. Because there's so many, the references are so thick that you need help as a reader, right? And so I feel like you, there could literally be like dark sky annotated. Like there, I mean, talk about needing show notes. Like there's so many it's like movies and pop cultures and things that that she's referencing. And then there's all these like literary references. I mean, it's like a really interesting text. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think what I enjoyed about it is it does feel kind of different. It's real. It is. It's I, I'm so glad you said that. I kept coming back to that over and over again. Like this is a weird book for IAD. Like there's a lot. It's interesting because, um, it's not a weird setup at all. No. This kind of like childhood lovers, like broken apart, or childhood friends, like broken apart by family drama and then like brought back together when they're grown ups. It's Romeo and Juliet. It's, I mean, there's so many yeah. things. Yeah. I is, mean, like, right? we've seen this story again and again and again. And there's something about this that's, and it, I think it is that kind of um, higher level storytelling that's going on here where like and and it's interesting because i i want to talk about whether or not it works as a as a romance because i think what we're seeing here is like a lot of thronos's it's this is thronos's story as much as melanthe is i mean she's learning how to harness her power and like how to do the work of being queen of persuasion but like this is Thronos kind of throwing off the yoke of his past and quite literally like throwing off the rules of his past and the, um, you know, the all of all of the uh, weight. I mean, the the literal hair, the like hair shirt, if we're going to talk about religion, right? Like he's taking off that sort of, all of that sort of religious business and he's becoming I mean, he's not becoming human, but he is becoming human, right? Like, he's he's becoming more uh, base. And he's also becoming a king, right? And I think that that's a, another part of it that I find really interesting. I mean, kind of interesting is, um, like, especially when you look at, like, stories of royalty. I mean, so much of romance is really like a mining, like, British aristocracy, right? Like, think about the power of, like, the Regency and how many, like, and a lot of those stories are about, like, mad kings and kids who are too young taking over the throne and not really knowing what's going on. And and how do you learn to do that when all of the advisors are, like, not to be trusted? And in a lot of ways, I feel like 
Thronos is sort of, in order to be the, like, the true good king of the Reckoners, he has to, like, unlearn all the things that he felt so smugly secure in. Yeah. Right? And I, I think that's, like, sort of an interesting journey. Like, we, you know, you and you talk all the time about, like, you have to be king, right? Like, he's... He literally, literally is going to be, be king. king. Yeah. And even though we've Rydstrom is a king and is kind of fighting for that lost kingdom, he was good all along. Mm. Thronos thought he was good or thought the Reckoners were good and then has to grapple with like, oh shit, we're not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it goes back to again and again. And I feel like I should have come to this long before McGreeve, but... Welcome to my life. I don't. <laughs> Sometimes it takes me some a long time to get there. But like again, it's part of it's that story of identity, that story of like who what is your truth? And like how and have you been honest about what your truth is? And I I mean I think I also really love I wanted to, I want to get to pandemonium. Yeah. Cuz I love pandemonium so much and I love so much of what happens there. So Melanthe basically has these like powers that are on the fritz and they're on the fritz because of the reckoners because she has spent her entire life as a sorceress healing Sabine who is now Rydstrom's queen um in she's she's healed Sabine Sabine again and again and again um after the reckon the reckoners have come for her so um and they've you know like uh, there's this sort of graphic moment where she r- refers to the fact that like at some point a, a reckoner found them and like flew Sabine like way up into the air and then dropped her from a height and she like crushed her skull and like she had to be and Melanthe has been like persuading Sabine to heal over the entirety of their sisterhood. Like, and and this is all because of him and his people. And so there's a lot of, like, rage. But also we know that Melanthe has the power to open portals. We learned that in Kiss of the Demon King. And so she's able, so they end up having to move between, like, from location to location. You know what I actually thought myself finding it thinking was that this was in some ways, a, like we've talked about leveling up all the time, right? We very much enjoyed the... Um, the Amazing Race. This is an Amazing Race mm-hmm, story, but mm-hmm. instead of being on Earth, it's through realms. Yeah. And I found it way more... I loved it because yeah. I felt like I could also like just enjoy it as pure fantasy rather than sort of um, like thinking about what it like the politics of like having the amazing race be like white Lorians throughout the world but not experiencing people sure and so i i found myself that i could really like enjoy them like it's truly magical whereas in the amazing race they're just after magical items yes but now it's like after like it's actual magic and i really i loved it well and what we've done is we've gone from murdoch and Danny's like starting to like fuss with world building, right? Like what mm-hmm. you can see in in that book, it's sort of echo echoes of like how we play with world building, and then to McReeve, where we actually move into another realm for part of the book, right? We yep. go to the Ubis realm, yep. and now here we are, and like Cressley's like, now let me show you how vast the universe is. Like, yes, and. Essentially, we use she uses 
she gives Melanthe this sort of broken power, this like fritzy power. And she says like, well, I can I can build a portal, but I can't guarantee it's going to be where I think it's going to be. So these portals just keep bringing them into like weirder and weirder and weirder locations. It's Alice in Wonderland. Absolutely. Yeah, it's everything, right? Well, and it's funny because sometimes, well, let's talk about pandemonium first. And then I want to talk about feverous. Oh, feverous. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So we get to, so I, I mean, I don't remember the order, but at some point we get to pandemonium and Panamonia is the realm of the demons. We ultimately discover that Panamonia is hell. Like, literal yeah, literal hell. hell. We're eventually going to meet the king of Panamonia. Um, spoiler. future In the future. So, um, and in Panamonia, there are two factions battling, and they've been battling forever. Like, there is no time when they were not battling. Yeah. And they're demon factions each one has a por- has a portal that links out of hell. Neither one of them has, but they each have a key to the opposite door. Didn't you just feel like it was some sort of like symbol for the patriarchy? <laughs> like I did. I was like, these fucking men just fighting all this fucking bullshit. I know. Just well, I mean, especially when Melanthe figures it all out and like handles it. Yeah. But actually, I had this moment. Do you remember the scene in Labyrinth where she has to choose between two doors and it's like, one of us always tells the truth and one of us always lies. And like she has to ask the door knockers like what door and then she lands herself in the oubliette with all the weird hands like this is very sort of like this is like one of those moments in my childhood that like has oh has just informed me forever it's so weird um but i had this i that's where i went i was like it's this kind of wacky like world where there are two doors and two keys and like the people have the wrong keys and like it's so stupid it's a stupid stupid battle that has no end but it also just like has no purpose either it's so mental so we so we're there and like there's this battle and there are dragons and it felt very like appropriate that the whole world is losing their mind about Game of Thrones this week and there's just a lot going on and then they get separated and Melanthe basically like ends a war <laughs> like she's yeah. just like I'm gonna go ahead and like fix this whole key situation. <laughs> Yes, like so casually, just like. And what I love is, is perfect, Cressley. It's I, I realized in that moment, like there's this great moment. Writers who listen to us, like it's worth reading this book for no other reason than like how Cressley solves this problem, because it's one of those moments where you can imagine that you go around and around and around as a writer at a moment like this. Well, how is she going to get the keys? And is she going to trick them? And where is she going to go? And is she going to go to battle? And she doesn't have skills. Like, what is her whole thing? And, like, literally the solution is so elegant because it's basically, no, she's going to walk right up to the key and take it in both places. And she's got – she's queen of persuasion, so she's just going to tell them, like, I'm going to get this key. Right. And there and it was so magnificent and so simple and dealt with in like two paragraphs. And what was amazing is, of course, Thronos has the whole the moment that a writer or a reader would have in this scenario where he's like, how would you do it? And you were in danger. And what's the this and what's the that? And she's like, 
And she's just like, I walked, I just did it. I just, I just yeah, handled I just it. it. Like, fuck you, patriarchy. Like, so, yeah, right? never like, send just, a man to do gonna, a woman's job. <laughs> yeah, and and that I did feel like there were a lot of really interesting. Um, I'm always really interested in stories where you put people who are competent or used to thinking of themselves as competent in a situation that then like challenges everything, and they have to figure out what they're really capable of. Yeah, and I felt like that's what what Theronos's experience was in Pandemonium and it really wasn't hers, right? No. It was his and and it starts with like translating like yeah. right real like and a lot of it is because he's getting in touch with the fact that he really is a demon. Yeah, he doesn't believe he's a demon because he's too elevated for that. Yes, reckoners are angels, not demons, right? Can we come back to that piece, the demon piece like yeah. in a bit? Because I do want to like keep, I want to stick with Pandemonium for just a touch longer because there is a magnificent moment there right before he finds her like, you know, sauntering out of wherever with her keys, right? She, the way that they get separated, like she's basically like, I'm going to go deal with this. And he's like, no, you're not. And she's, and she persuades him to remain still, like to basically not move. And she says, you are not going to move for 24 hours. For 24 hours. Unless, and he's like, well, what if, like, a hell beast comes for me? And she's like, all right, fine. If you're in danger, then you can move. And then she leaves. And he's there, stuck, frozen, like, Mm -hmm. stuck. And she's like, and then he's thinking to himself. And he's, and it's really, it's It's one of these moments where, like, you just think, like, wow, this is such smart. It's such an inspired way of getting around things, right? It's also, it made me think, there are no vows to the lore in this book, but, like, it made me think of, like, how you can get out of a vow to the lore in some way, which we're about to sort of, that's going to be a major piece of the next book. Um, Because he's thinking about her, and he's so worried about what might happen to her, like, if left, let loose in this, like, demon killing kingdom. Yes. That he's worried about her safety, and he thinks to himself, if she dies and she's my fated mate, I die too. So her being in danger puts me in danger, and instantly he's released. The thing that's also fascinating about that is it says over and over again that he is just a black and white thinker. Mm -hmm. And yet pandemonium is where he essentially learns To, like, think outside the box. Like, the literal box that he's in. Yeah. And then what's... But my favorite part of that is, like, then he runs to her because he's sure she's going to be in danger. And she's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I just handled it. And she's, like, sliding out with the keys. I mean, it's pretty fabulous. And that's, like, the first... It's the... it's Or I don't know if it's first, but it's one of many moments along the way. The translations, the sort of awareness of... How this place that is so the opposite of his place, right, is hot and earthbound and gruesome and booby trapped, filled with like people, like animals and like animals that are irregularities and like (laughs) demons who want to have sex all the time, like and war, all these things that like the Reckoners don't have because they live in their like white sky kingdom with cold showers and. The yes. clouds right yes well no right. clouds but whatever and i just adore every minute of it um and i love and now maybe we should talk now about 
what's happening, how they get to Feverus. Because it's not a portal. No, it's a trick, right, essentially. Right, there are all these, like, tricks. Yes, I mean, and that's the thing. That was, like, the part, like, the booby trap part. Like, remember the end, like, you know, so there's so many scenes in Raiders of the Lost Ark where, Mm -hmm. right, they're trying to, like, you know, he's trying to make his way through these places and everything's booby trapped. And and the one other part I thought, now, here's the part. Thronos, he knows that's his fated mate. It's been 500 years and we're going to, I think, talk about this with Samantha, but he is still a virgin because once you know who your fated mate is, you can't get with anybody else. Right. Which is the opposite of what demons are, right? Like yes. demons attempt, attempt women right. every day forever. He, yeah, but he has not and he can't. And he is furious with her for, I mean, it's really hard, actually. He basically calls her a slut or a slatter, or a whore, or a harlot, a bunch of times, like a lot of times. And she, she knows that he judges her for, and she's like, I wasn't trying to hurt you. I was living my life. And what happens is there's this one really interesting scene where he essentially like wanders into like a cordoned off kind of, you know, don't go in here territory that is essentially Groundhog's Day. Where he, like, keeps experiencing the same thing over and over again. But he, like, will wake up and know that he can change it. And what he's seeing is Melanthe's death. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason that it's so important is because he realizes, like, through this, like, sort of interminable, and it's only him experiencing it. It's not her. She's like, oh, my God, he's stuck in there and having seizures and sort of pulls him out. But it's this moment that allows him to realize, like, I've been a fool. Like, I I thought something mattered that didn't. What matters is our life and our future together, not our past and her, like, purity. And I think that, therefore, like, so every single one of these, like, experiences in Pandemonium is, like, teaching him something about himself. And it's... He comes out of hell a lot more likable. Yeah. Well, because he comes out of hell kind of with an awareness of the fact that he is a demon, that he does have this sort of darker side. And he does that because they are, they get, well, now wait a second. When does he get, when do they, they're still in hell when they go to Feverus. Yeah, so basically, remember... They get eaten, right? They get eaten, but this is the Jonah and the whale part of it, right? Yeah, so yeah. they're they think that they've portaled to to Feverus. And it's <laughs> the a... It's, sex planet. The sex planet. Hello. Hey, Robin Lovett. Are you a Cassie <laughs> Cole fan? <laughs> and what's fascinating about this, though, is... Um, and it turns out that really in, they're in the belly of this essentially beast who is, like, feeding on them. And it's a shared, um, like, il- like, illusion, I guess, that they are stuck in... Because then they won't fight to try and get out, right? And what's interesting about it is it's like what they both really secretly want, right? And so for her, it's I get to do, I get to be with him in this like really hot, sexy way without feeling like I'm going to be judged by him afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I think, and then for him, it's like I can, you know, 
his the Reckner laws about premarital sex are so strict and confining that they're not even supposed to kiss anyone. No. No contact whatsoever. And he is dying to get with her, right? So it's really interesting that they essentially co-create this, like, fantasy world that's what both of them want, even though it's for, like, different reasons. Yeah. And it's important at this point that we point out that Nyx comes. (laughs) Yeah. Because, I mean, once you sort of figure out... They're in Feveris and like, and it becomes pretty, like there's, it's pretty clear pretty quickly that something's up. Yeah, they're both feeling these like weird pains and just kind of ignoring it, right? Yeah, and so, and also we've been told, right, that like Feveris, once you've been there for five minutes, like she's been there before, Melanthe's been there one time before. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sense, and she was like, and I, you know, tied a rope around my waist and like had them pull me back in. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I was taking, I was getting naked for a troll. <laughs> like, when, when they pull me back in, right? And so, like, Nyx turns up at this, like, dream Feveris. And is, and they're like, oh, we're in Feveris, we're in Feveris. And she's like, yeah, but are you? Because neither of you want to bone me. And look at me. And Melanthe's like, like, yeah, maybe? I have looked at you before. And that is weird, because I should want to bone you right now, right? <laughs> and and Nyx is like, I'm sure you're where you think you are yeah and then she like whispers into uh thronos's ear like this is where like you're in you're in this situation and then she takes off and it's interesting because it is a it is a moment where like you see cressley's fingerprints all over it which Uh is a rare occasion for Cressley, yeah. right? Like, yeah. but like, I think well, partially what happened was like she had to get she had to get them the fuck out of there, right? Yeah, this is right. a really hard book to write because Thronos is so like compulsively unset, like non sexual. Yeah, that like in order for and remember, you guys, Cressley is coming off of Lothair, McCreeve, and the Professional at this point, so like. This is a weird fourth book in that quartet. I think the other thing that's really interesting about it is, and I'm I'm like trying to figure out how to say this, is I think, and we've, okay, in a series that's this long, right, you have to figure out like what every person, every possible permutation and combination is, right? And it's like, so part of me is like, okay, so... And we've talked a lot about opposites, right? So it's like if you have a sorcerer who's like loves life, loves sex, loves her powers, loves gold, what is her opposite going to be? Well, this stick in the mud, mm-hmm. know it all. And that's not a real fun character to write unless you're going to really put him through his paces in terms of like making him change. And that change has to be all the ways in which he was wrong. Mm-hmm. It cannot be that he convinces her to like start wearing a shroud and give up her powers and be happy up in Sky Hall. No. So let's talk about Sky Hall because, yeah. I mean, so like I said, I think this is a really hard book. I, I think it's a tough, I, I, I cannot imagine how difficult this book was to write for Cressley because he's so. I mean, like, it's not that sexy. 
Like, it's not, there certainly isn't very much sex in it, period. But also there just isn't much sexiness because every time it sort of crosses into that, Thronos resists it. Right? There's a constant sense of, like, him having to resist his, like, biological urges. Yeah. And in resisting them, he just makes Melanthe feel bad about herself. Well, and did you feel that Or not, was, maybe like, she doesn't feel bad about herself, but, like, he's... She feels bad about how to. he... Yeah, yeah. It's insulting. It's yes. insulting. And I would say, as a romance reader, I also felt very much like... Uh, it was like the voice of everyone who's ever been like, wait, you read what kind of book? Mm-hmm. I, I, f- I felt it kind of personally, too, in mm-hmm. a way that I thought was kind of interesting. Maybe, like I said, more so this time around where yeah. I was like really ready to fight, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, so then they get up there into the sky hall and like they're, you know, he's like, I'm going to bed you. Like we have to we have to go to bed in our big bed in, like, this particular yeah. bed. It felt very Odyssean for me. Sure. Like, I was thinking well, about that bed. Built. Bed of Troth is, like, yeah. For, like, and it's, betrothal, they right? start to build it the moment that they're born. born. Like, it's crazy. It was also really interesting because several times, though, they talked about how this is something only the more, um, like, stable groups of immortals could have these, like... I mean, a life of an immortal is very long. Mm. So to have a stable enough home that you could literally build a bed that might be around five or six hundred years yeah. later. Well, I mean, that's all foreshadowing, right? Because sure. Sky Hall is is shadowed. It's hidden. It's yeah. the only other... There, there's a lot of reference to the Dacian books. Oh, we should mention that, too. So there's a moment in here, and I want to say, so I've only read one of the Shadows books. I've only read one of the Dacian books, and there are two. And yeah. what's her name? The god, the sorceress? Morgana. Morgana. So Morgana is a big piece of this puzzle. And if you, like I, have not read the book that involves Morgana in the Called Dacian Shadows books, um, you too probably had a moment where you were like, who the hell is this bitch? Yeah. And why is she just like riding in here like cavalry? Like what has happened? There are two things that are really important in Shadow's Claim. And we made a decision that I stand by, which is we're going to talk about them later. But Jen made but it. I made the decision <laughs> and I, I stand by it because, well, because we couldn't do whatever. No, I don't care. It's, I it's made fine. the decision. It's fine. fine. I've survived but, without reading them. So it's fine. Yeah. It's not just Morgana, but it's also the the beheading of the Reckoners, right? right? So when we've when we've met Reckoners earlier in this series, they are monstrous mm-hmm. and everyone is terrified of them. And so to then have a Reckoner hero who is convinced of their godliness, right? Their goodness, right. their their Christian charity. It's, right. It was really fascinating. In, in that sense, you're, that's like the thing that you're kind of missing because you're like, wait, who the fuck does this dude think he is? I know what they did to Bettina. So, right, that, right. Right. And so that is kind of interesting. I but, mean, the story is told in the context of the book. Yes. So you don't you know have enough. to, like, I did not feel like I had to read that book. I had missed out on it. But I did have a moment this time around where I was like, why is this woman just like riding in at the 11th hour to like well, yeah. battle everything? And I didn't know who she was. Right. Yeah. So that is a, that is a moment where I wish that 
I wished that I had read those Dacian books. However, or that one Dacian book. Um, however, yeah. there is shit. I forgot but, what I was gonna say. But don't must you feel like must have been a lie? <laughs> Should I tell that story to everybody, you guys? I was telling Sarah, my beloved grandmother. Um, we were talking about like things your grandparents said to you, right? And my grandma, if you would like be talking and forget what you were going to say, she would say, must have been a lie. But she'd do it with this, like, God, I love it. twinkle in her eye. And it was honestly the most amazing I love it. thing. I told Jen I wanted to put it in a book. So now if I do, you'll all know what that means. Yeah, for sure. Um, here's the thing, though. Don't you feel like that's what Nyx is doing? I mean, in a, like, it's literally God Coming in, in at the, the machine, 11th hour. Right? Coming in at the yeah. 11th hour. Okay, yeah, sure. Except... Nix has been doing it for 17 books. Sure. So I care less about it when Nix comes. Like when Nix comes in, I'm like, oh, here comes Nix to fix everything or to yeah, make everything right. more complicated. Right. 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 Um, so uh, this is all fine. But my issue is, so they get up to, they get in, or not an issue, but so they get up to Val, no, Sky Hall, and they are living, They and he's basically like, it's time. Yeah. We're going to get this done. Like, I'm ready. I've been wanting to have sex with you for a long time. Yeah. I've, at this point, like, he's figured out that his horns are sexual organs. Yes. He is He is feeling – he knows there's a seal. He knows the seal is going to break. He is ready. And he's like, but hang on a sec because I got to go and get a thing. Yes. <laughs> he runs – out. He leaves her in their like house, their roofless house. Yep. I'd also want to say these houses have no roofs, and she's like, "So do people just fly over and look?" <laughs> and he's like, "No, no." Like, and of course, like if you lived in this place, you'd definitely be flying over your neighbors' houses. Sure, of course. Hello. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, and he goes and he gets a sheet with a hole in it. Oh, my God. Ugh, this fucking guy. But you know what? This is his culture. I mean, at the same time, though, this is where we start to see, like, okay, full. There's no. Quest is not even trying to hide, like, oh, yeah. Out, like, what she's pointing no. to here. No, not at all. I mean, come on. They've been to heaven. They've been in the belly of the beast. Now they're in heaven. I mean, it's so biblical that there's, like, no way to miss to miss any of it. And Yeah, the, like, Christian allegory here. Yeah. What I thought was. And I think Samantha want to talk about this, but I think it's fine. Is I was really interested though in her like being like, "This is important to him, so I'm gonna do it." I know it was so kind, and I totally was, wouldn't have done that myself. No, I would have been like, "Get that fucking holy sheet off of me!" Like we're fucking or we're not. Like right? <laughs> and I, but I do think that in a romance, right? Like we talk a lot about like what it means to be partners and to have yeah. a partnership. Yeah. And I think she, she's like, boy, I, and I, it's this weird thing, right? Where you're like, she shouldn't have to give up anything. Mm-hmm. But then. No, I mean, cause here's the truth of it. She really loved, they loved each other. Like they, the, one of the most magnificent moments in this book, and it happens a few times, is when he, like, wraps her in his wings. In his wings. Right? Like, I he know. wraps her in, in his, like, massive wings to protect her from fire, to protect her from cold, to protect her from animals. Like, he – and then, like, 
and she, every time he does it, every time they close each other, they he closes her into his wings. Like one of them says, "When we were children, we used to tell secrets this way." Yeah, like, ev- like there's this like moment where you realize like. He was always a secret from, like, she kept him a secret as when they were children from her family. And he's kind of keeping her a secret now from his, like, from all of the outside influences. And his wings, his, like, demon, the demon in him is doing that. And it's really, really beautiful. It's another thing about this I was thinking, and I... You know, I don't love stories where, like, faded mates meet as children. I find it, like, a little creepy. But <laughs> I think... I'm writing one of those right now, man. Yeah, okay, thanks. <laughs> um, n- I don't know, like, even teenagers, right? But I'm, like, nine. She was nine. Yeah. He was 11. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, it's fine. It's well, not my favorite. Like doing it. I know. It doesn't matter. But I feel like the... The thing about, like, the thing about that, though, is, like, mm, okay, it's like fate versus free will, right? Like, this attention, like, I, oh, how am I going to say this? Okay, you, it, I love the idea of fated mates because it puts people in conflict with each other, right? At their, like, really, like, core selves. Who are we and can we, like, make this work together? But when you're putting, like, children in that situation... It's also this like really interesting thing where you're like, but they don't even know who they are. Right. They have to relearn each other. Spoiler, that's the whole arc of the book that I'm writing right now. And it's because like that's the only way it can work is like yes. you cannot be the people you were when you were children yes. because you would then be adult children. Yes. Well, <laughs> here's the other thing, though. I don't think in this book that she would be able to forgive him if they would not have been best friends as children. Right? Like, like all the terrible things that he does when he, like, finds her again and he keeps calling her a whore and all this stuff. Like, I think she would have been, like, literally fuck right off. Yeah. But the basis of this, like, they were best friends. And that means that, like, this is a rough patch rather than being the way they start. And also, again, we've talked about this before, but... It's really balanced because it there's a balance to this book that comes from him having like her having done what she did to him. Like it is a truly awful experience. Like he he sees instantly in that moment when they're children, he's he's trying to understand, right? Again, it's this black and white thinking, right? Yeah. He's in that moment in her home and he senses that something has gone terribly wrong. And he's just basically like, wait a second. Like just give me one second to think through what's just happened here. And you sort of have, there's this great moment where you sort of have this feeling that, like, he's going to see it. He's He'll get there. If you just give him five minutes, he'll get there. And Melanthe's so broken. She's so hurt. She's so tortured by what's happened to her family that she refuses to give him that. Yeah. Well, and that's the part, though, I also, one of the most inexplicable moments in this book for me 
is, and it's probably in the first third where, um, like, they're just starting to talk to each other, right? Like, they're so full of mistrust that they can't. And there's this moment where he, she finally, like, she talks about, like, what was done to me and what was done to my sister and my parents. And, and there's a moment where he thinks something like, he'd never really considered that she had, like, something to be really upset about. And I was like, dude, her parents were fucking beheaded by your father. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? Like, I, I, and that was the part I, I. But it's growth, right? It's. Yeah. It goes back to what you were saying. Like, their children, they mm-hmm. can't be trusted, right? They can't be trusted to know what love is. They can't be trusted to, like, whatever fantasy that they have about what happened when they were 11 or 12 is a fantasy. The truth is yeah. never what a child thinks it is at that age. Right? Right. right. Because it just can't be. And so as like this is, I mean, I'll, I'll say it again. It's thrown us a story. Like it's all thrown us having to learn how to be a person. One reason I don't love like I don't really tend to enjoy like second chance at love plots is because I often feel like one of the characters really has been in stasis and it's almost always the heroine Mm. and part of the re right. Like, so she's been like sad and kind of stuck and he's moved on and had a life and then they get back together. And I'm always like, you know what? These books really only work for me if everybody's moved on and they're literally different people because of the lives they've had. And now when they're going to try again, it's going to work mm. because they're different, right? But it's really interesting to me that in this book, he's the one who's been stuck. And she's the one who's gone on to live a life. And I think that that's also, though, because he knows it's his fated mate that he doesn't feel like he even knows how to do that. Mm-hmm. Right? Like... He talks a lot in the beginning about how she's taken away the things that were, like, promised to him. Like, she owed him something. Yeah, like, she owed him a wife. She owed him children. Yes. She owed him a family. She sure. owed him love. Like, and she's kind of like, fuck off. And I I mean, I love that. I want to say, and then I think we should get to Samantha. Um, I just want to point out that this is the first time someone actually gets pregnant on the page. Yep. In IED. Um, Holly has had twins and right. like maybe holly's pregnant at the end but she's not like it's not part of the story that holly gets pregnant it's like you're definitely probably pregnant holly because there's no way that wasn't going to happen but yeah, because yeah. you're the fucking vessel so get over it um but but melanthe is in heat i mean like basically i guess like sorceress smell it on her. sorceresses get they they are in heat. It's weird, uh, but fine, cool. No kink shaming, <laughs> and and he can smell it on her. And he's basically like, now if we do this now, we're gonna get pregnant. And she's like, cool, cool, cool. One of the like small moments in this book, and a way, and I found myself really again with like the recent abortion laws being passed is her mother Elizabeth is seen as she's kind of crazy she's sort of but like imagine what it would be like to essentially have given birth to Omort yeah to the accession's greatest warrior for evil and you were the vessel for that and in in Holly's case we know that they're after her but like 
it's going to end, end up being like a happy story. Well, it has to be, right? Because right. it's a romance. So we don't worry about Holly. Yeah, no, of course not. But I found myself really thinking like, well, shit, you be as crazy as you want. You deserve it, right? And I mean, and Melanthe feels that way too. Like she's sort of like, I, I think she has sort of come to this place where she understands her mother in a different way. And it's really, I I noticed that too. And I, I mean, it had to have had something to do with what was going on in the world this week. But it felt very much to me like Cressley was making a point, which was, and I mean, it, there is something to the fact that like they don't have sex until three quarters of the way through the book. And part of the reason why they don't have sex until three quarters of the way through the book is because she's going to get pregnant in the sense, and I don't mean that on the page, I mean... Yeah. I mean, I think Cressley is giving them time to, like, she sets it out as if they have sex, she's going to get pregnant. So, um, and then ultimately he does kind of say to her, like, you know that if we do this, this will happen. And he leaves her the space to say, yes, yeah. I want this. Um, and I I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't. I don't know why I'm saying all this because I'm not – I don't have a theory on why this character is the character who gets pregnant. And I don't know that I love that it's this book. Yeah. But it happens. Here, Here's my answer to that is Melanthe has been in charge of her own sexuality and her own body this entire this entire story, her entire life. And so if there was going to be a character who was like, yes, I'm fuck. Yes, I'm ready to get pregnant. It would be her because she knows who she is. And she like, right. As opposed to like with Holly, it really kind of wasn't a choice. And I think you're going to maybe put that decision in the hands of your most like rock solid. Yes, I own all of my sexual choices kind of character. Yeah. And and I think that's in an interesting way, like the one thing maybe we could talk about before we switch over and talking about Samantha is like the the fact then that um, his memory is stolen from him. Right. And I found that to be a really like a terrible, terrible curse that she puts upon him. And about um, upon both of them. Yes. Yes. But it had to happen. And oh, this yeah. is why, like, I didn't feel, I mean, we've talked about this with a lot of books. So, like, did he grovel enough? Was he punished enough? And I know that we've gone around and around. But, like, for me, this book, he did not. Like, until oh, yeah. she was stolen from him and he had no choice. Like, he just lived in this, like, empty belief. Like, he finally, it's like she was removed from his memory and suddenly he was able to see how bleak it was, that world. Like, how un, how it lacked all color, vibrancy. all life, all vibrancy, yeah. And that's what Sky Hall was, right? That's what it was, like, intending to do. And he's like, yeah, no, this is great. But when he actually experiences that as a life, yeah, it's, it's awful. Yeah. She's always been color- to him like he sees her in a field the first time he sees her he sees her in a verdant field like surrounded by berries like and like she's color and he's 
And then when she's gone, all he knows is that he's lost this. And then that brings us back to pandemonium, right? Because he goes back to pandemonium because he and he takes the long way. That's what it's called, the long way. And like they they meet before they start on that path, but they they meet and then they go down this long way to this like verdant, beautiful like oasis in the middle of this like hellscape and it's magnificent and it makes sense for them because they really have been on a journey together and that she then the things that like broke her powers like trying to heal her sister but she heals him right and that like telling him to remember i mean i found though like i found that like the sense of it like coming together like the beginning of like the story closing very beautifully written it's a really like tightly written book it's also short short it's it's a very short iad book um but it's very in a way that none of the other and this is again it feels different because it doesn't feel like any of the other books in that there is a very clean lovely kind of private arc to it i would agree okay i want us when we switch over to talking to samantha you know what we didn't talk about but i want to is fury oh yeah and yeah Marius and his monk like monk like elephant dong i don't even know Whoa. i know well let's talk about that because that's one of the few places where there's actual like reference to sex in the book so all right well uh welcome Samantha, we are so excited to have you. Why don't you tell us tell us about yourself? Um, hi, I'm Samantha. I also go by SS Jackson if you follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm the one who did the vagina thread not too long ago. I think you guys mentioned it in one episode, right? We did. <laughs> we we did. What was the vagina thread? <laughs> I don't remember anything. Once it's happened on the show, it's gone from my head. (laughs) Yeah, I did a whole vagina. It's, I think that tweet was my second most liked tweet. The first one is still the one about the Immortals After Dark. Tell this. I love, it was a plane, right? Like you were on a plane? Tell the story. Yeah, it was after RWA last year in Denver. And um, I forget sometimes when I'm wearing makeup, I'll rub my eyes and get like the raccoon look. And this guy was being super creepy on a Southwest flight um, when I was flying back from Seattle to Denver. Um, And he sat in the middle seat and like I was one of the first people to get on the plane. And he started talking, started talking me up and he's like, well, what happened to your eye? And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you have a black eye. And I realized immediately what I did. But I was just like tired and snarky. And I was like, oh, you know, club, club initiation. And he was like, oh, yeah, what what, what club? And I was reading Immortals After Dark. And so I was like, uh, Immortals After Dark. And he got up and moved. <laughs> he, he was like, what in the hell? And that was probably, I think that's still my most liked tweet to this day. Well, and also you just, you've now given that to the whole, the whole group. Anytime some weirdo comes up to you anywhere and asks you weird questions. Yeah. Just tell them you're a member of the Immortals After Dark Club. Right. We could get like uh, leather jackets, like the pink ladies in Greece. <laughs> sure. There you go. <laughs> the Vel- the Valkyrie ladies. Wait, but what was the vagina tweet? Oh, I did a whole thread on like vagina rage because I've had a lot of vagina issues. And I was just mad one day. 
Well, it was like education, right? Like you were talking about yeah. all the things you learned that you never learned when you were like a uh, like a teenager. Oh or my god! Like, I somehow missed this whole thread, and now I have to go back and find it. It'll be in show yeah. notes, everyone. It's brilliant. Well, basically, how like sex. I remember like being fourteen, and you know, reading romance novels, and being like, "Dude, they're both enjoying this," and that is not how it is in the real world. And that's when I kind of started to realize, like, sex is definitely for the man in the real world. But in Romance Landia, it's for us. Yeah. Fair. Well, that seems like an appropriate beginning to a discussion <laughs> of Dark Sky. Well done. That was a really nice segue. So let's, let's talk about... <laughs> So it's funny because when I do remember, like, it's like a week in between, like, the recordings of these. But, you know, we talked a lot about Thronos, but not as much about Melanthe. And one of the reasons why is because I knew, Samantha, that you really wanted to talk about her as, like, a, a heroine who really is in charge of her own, like, sexual history and her own sexual pleasure. So, like, why does that speak to you? Because, like, this was a book that, like, not as many people love, but I know that you have a real fondness for. I mean, if I'm being honest, I have a real fondness for most of the books. Well, sure. Naomi and what's-his-face, I don't remember. Well, you're wrong about that. I was like, I've been been re-listening to that one because I love it so much. Oh, it's so good. I just imagine her, like, twitting around and it bothers me. Dark, dark. Dark dancing at dusk. Dark dancing at a silver moon. <laughs> What's it called? Maybe yeah. <laughs> Dark needs at night's edge. No, oh, that's, that's another right. one. That's correct. The edge. I always. The edge is the edge of the property line for me in my head. That's how I try to remember. Oh, like, that's how I can recognize. There you go. Whose book the title is, but I can't do it in reverse. <laughs> anyway. So both both male virgin virgin books start with dark in the title. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Interesting. Well, there we are others, get... though. Dark Desires After Dusk. Who's I that? mean, trying to find, like, the secret calculus of these names would really be something so weird. So, it's so weird. So, trigger warning. Uh, rape, miscarriage, all that stuff. And I touched on this in my, uh, my vagina thread. But um, my past with sex as it is for a lot of women um, or essentially people who aren't cis hetero males um, is very, you know, complicated. It's got a lot of layers. I'm a rape survivor. Um, I've had a miscarriage. I was in a abusive relationship for six years and um, I came back to myself through romance and finding series um, that kind of gave me back some power in knowing that it's okay to enjoy sex again. Sorry, my voice is cracking because I, I, I can talk about stuff. I'm totally okay, but it's still not that easy. Of course. It's your story. I mean, it's really powerful. And to know that romance does that for, for people is part of the reason I love it so much. Yeah, yes. I don't think you're alone at all. In this, I, I'm I, not. Which I hope gives you a sense of community. Oh, I'm not. And I mean, Romance Landia has totally been one of my like greatest hearing healing like aspects of the whole process. Like my therapist, so I swear she knows about as much going on in Romance Landia as I do. 
Um, <laughs> but Lanthe just really speaks to me because throughout the entire book, she does not apologize once for her sexual past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not once. Even I even had a quote written down that I can't find because I have a lot of notes right now. But basically, he says, like, why would you want to sleep with him? And she says, why not? Yeah. Like, she, she just, she never apologized. And she never wavers. And I feel like in a lot of books, you know, heroines are really proud of their sexual past until it's that time to finally have that last uh, reconciliation. And then for some reason, there's some sort of apology about it, if that makes sense. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't I, I don't want to give any examples because I don't want to put anyone on blast. Sure. But they're just like, and she does not waver once. And she never lets anyone, I mean, she's constantly taken advantage by males who want her powers or something else from her. And she never once blames herself for that. She always says, like, that was them. Yeah. They wanted something for me. They used me. And she never, ever once blames herself. And that mm-hmm. is something that women are trained to do the opposite of. Yeah. From day one of having a sexual identity. I read a book. I just read a book where um, a, a hero is a, it's not Immortals After Dark, but it felt, it was just like a moment. I had a moment where the hero, his wife has died. It's been two years. And he sort of matter of factly says that like about a month or two after she died, he basically went out like once a week and just had like a one night stand. And I was like, okay, for sure. Fine. That's like a hundred women. And I didn't really care except that I noted that a woman would never be given that story and it would never be given so matter of factly. Sure. It, right. Right. Ever. And I liked that yeah. the heroine didn't judge him, but I was kind of like, this would, the reverse would never happen, right? Yeah. Well, this whole book is sort of flipping the script on how we think about, like, Wallflower Rake. Like, he definitely has a stick up his ass. Just, like, a lot of, like, proper Wallflower heroines in the early... It's a whole tree. Yeah. Yeah. In the early days of, of the genre. And now, and and she really is, like, a really, like, lovely rake. In the sense that she has been around the block and no one seems to, like it's not a thing except to him. And Cressley totally calls it out in that one scene with Nereus, who I told Jen has a, I, he has like big ew energy because I just can't stand him. <laughs> but he does have one good point, and it's when he says, um, Why? is sex the one thing men want their women to be novices at? Yes. Yeah. And she and she's like exactly. Thank you. And I was like, <laughs> okay, you get you get a half point, Nereus, but I still hate you like you're gross. Yeah. He's super gross, but I kind of want to like hang with him. Does oh, that make yeah. Me gross? On on the on the bed of what are those like when she's like laying on the bed and she's on top of like creatures? Oh. Well, and, like, the description of his, like, like donkey cock, right, that is, like, basically hanging down to the ground or something was a whole lot. Like, did I miss that? I mean, I, like, read it and was like, wait, really? It's not It's not hot imagery. No, not no, at all. Nereus is, like, life of the party guy. Like, if you get invited to, like, the party at Nereus's house, you go. And you prepare <laughs> for a big flopping schlong. <laughs> you don't go... 
you don't go for him. You go for the experience of watching. <laughs> yeah, he probably has some really intense orgies. Well, and you make sure that no one can like get anything in your drink, right? Because like, who knows what would happen? Yeah, you drink bottled water only. <laughs> yeah. You know, what's Oof. interesting, though, is that I had forgotten that they actually see Fury. And one of the things that I had, like, as we went back and reread, like, the beginning of the series, I remember thinking, like, this is so weird. Like, all these stories are still really good. But, like, now that we're in the, like, you know, movement three or we're going to get to movement three, which is, like, the Morior, it felt like so many of those plot lines is sort of, like, we're, like, essentially dead ends. But it's really interesting to see how she is really actually, like, literally oh, resurrecting them. I think this is really interesting because we talked a little bit in the uh, in our in our conversation about Lanthe's kind of freedom and and her resilience and her in a, her unwillingness to compromise on this sort of really ridiculous problem that Thronos has about <laughs> like he I mean like it, this is a real Thronos problem and not a Melanthe problem um, right and so it's also like a I, real life problem. It's a real it's a real life problem too. But what I think is really interesting here is that the actual sex on the page in this book really tackles this problem or this issue from all sides, right? Because he is so in his head about what sex should be there for and should mean and how it should go. And she is having none of it. And I think that is a really powerful it's a powerful act and it's a powerful sort of subversion of patriarchy and the way that we think about women and sex and I'm really I just think it's really I'm very grateful that you brought this up because I feel like it is so important and it feels like even more important now in 2019. I think her persuasion is such a powerful theme in this book because I mean if you want to talk about Bible references the Bible you know if you want to go with the evangelical um, definition or viewing of it women are evil the tongues of women will convince men to do evil and sinful things right that's why we have periods and stuff because Eve ate the apple because we are constantly tempting men to do wrong and so Lanthe having the power of persuasion where she can literally force anyone to do what she wants just by speaking, not even on purpose, you know, most of the time, at least when she's younger, is a very scary thing. And just watching it and the parallel of his acceptance of her and his believing her and her truth, despite knowing she has this power, I think is like, a really powerful progression in terms of, you know, you want to talk about relating to today, men believing women, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, because he, with her, his brother and stuff and how they always attacked her, he starts saying like, no, no, they'd never do that. And the more she speaks her truth without persuasion, the more he says, why would she say this to me? You know, if, if it's not true. Well, it's interesting then too, that her tongue was cut out, right? Like, but yes. yet she still is true, right? Like that whole like symbol then like kind of fails for him because, 
you know, if this is like your tongues are literally like the source of this evil and yet her tongue is gone and yet what the story she's telling is still there. Like it's, and the fact that then they communicate telepathically, like there's some way that they're really connected that I just thought that was like really powerful. And we talk a lot about um, Lothair's heart being ripped out as being like really symbolic, but it's no mistake that it's like her tongue, right? Right. Right. No. Like her voice is literally taken from her. Yeah. And well, I think the other thing that's funny too is if you think about it, Lanthe never uses her persuasion to lie. Mor- Morgana uses it to lie to Thronos and make him forget her, but she never uses it to lie. She uses it to get herself out of safety when she tells the other sorcerer to sleep. But I don't think she ever uses it to lie. She just uses it to get herself to safety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and to get all the Reckoners to safety at the end, right? Like, she's the one who, like, pushes the alarm. Right, right. Which I think, you know, speaks to how this book, I think this book is just such a, like, constant symbol of women in power too because i mean if you look like even when she shows up in court as thronos's wife for the first time i can't remember his name but it's the knight who we don't like we'll call him fuckboy knight <laughs> but he he says like she still has her power like she's gonna persuade us all to like do that right yeah and it is just like you know she walks in there and she notes how there's no female knights you know all the sorcerer lose their souls because they can't be trusted and it's this total like reverse universe compared to the rest of the immortals after dark world, because in the immortals after dark world, like women are powerful and women are strong and that's to be respected. And this is the one place where the patriarchy is in place. Although it did mm-hmm. remind me a lot of Sabine's um, like sort of saving the women on like that demon plane. Did we talk about the sheet Sarah last week? Very, very vaguely because we knew that Samantha wanted to talk about the sheet. I mean, who knew a sheet could be so sexy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what we did talk about, Samantha, so you should know, is that I really, we talked about the fact that, like, he gets her finally to this bed, this, like, bed that's been built for him, like, was built for him when he was born. And he's like, okay, 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 finally, finally, we get to do it. And once we do it in this bed, we're married and it's, this is done. Like, we're mated forever. And then he's like, oh, hang on a second. I got to go get a thing. And then, like, he runs to the church (laughs) and, like, gets this, like, holy she, literally and figuratively, and then brings it back to her and she doesn't flinch she's like okay i guess we're doing it with this sheet right now (laughs) yeah i think she says like kinky yeah 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 well and i mean even there she claims like she claims her spot in the bed because they do it once his way yeah he claims her and then she i i still can't figure out how she switches the sheet because in my mind at this point it looks like you know, the Charlie Brown ghost sheet where there's just like two holes cut out. No, because you know what? It's supposed to like lay over her entirely, but it's yeah, like, I think there's just one hole. There's just the one hole. But what happens is, is like they've pushed it down to her waist. So essentially it's like kind of laying over, I think, her bottom half. And then when she essentially like rolls him over and is now on top of him, it just like flutters down over him, right? And now she's the one on top of this hole in the sheet. 
And his penis is just like right out the <laughs> Right. Top. A glory I mean, hole. It's, like, <laughs> it's so sexy, but I'm also over here like, how it's does this real not get weird. caught in his wings? <laughs> like, how are they not tangled? Oh, in his wings. Yeah. Right? right. I forgot about the wings. Ugh. Like, I'm just like, I feel like someone It's because would be of stuck. God, Samantha. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The podcast is now over, everyone. <laughs> oh, shit. God made the fucking good. That's what happened on the I feel like he That's could why. never be on his back with those wings. Hmm. All right. Anyway. Oh, I, nobody always is because that's how, because then he wraps them around her, which is the oh, sexiest part. Oh, it is. I have to say, I do not find the sheet sexy <laughs> in any way. Like, I'm like, I don't whatever, just get this sheet business over with. I just want them to do it inside his wings <laughs> all the yeah. time. Like, why can't his wings be the sheet yeah. and then both be inside them? Um, I think but, they get I mean, winger. no kink shaming, Samantha, if you're into the sheet. It was more it. just, like, interesting. If I don't think about it too hard, I think it's the whole, like, you know, barely shot. I imagine it being a very translucent sheet. Oh, no. I think it was, <laughs> I don't like, think this is at all transitional. They didn't want you seeing. This was, like, you know, very puritanical, like, literally. Yeah, this is, like, sailcloth. That's not <laughs> sexy. You know what? <laughs> I know. I'm like, we ruined it. You know what? The, here's what was... Here's what was interesting to me about that scene is when he, like, brings it out, I kind of wanted her to fight. I wanted her to be like, that's fucking ridiculous, and we're not going to do it this way. Because of, like, the patriarchy. And instead, she's kind of like, okay, sure. And they and she makes it sexy, right, for both of them. And then when she flips over, it's her saying, like, okay, I respect your culture in the same way I want you to respect mine. Right? But and I'm going to persuade you to have orgasm denial. <laughs> I And so in that way, I thought it was important. Like, if she was like, I'm going to wear my mini skirts and I'm going to wear my gauntlets and i'm gonna wear my you know sorcery gear then i'm gonna give you some of that back right yeah no she did she she owned the night or day i mean i do think that there is another piece here which is like she this this book does have to have sort of mutual acceptance in it and the reality is is that like as much as he hates sorcery she hates the reckoner yeah so like Everything that she stands for, or actually, I would argue, uh, that's not actually true because Theronos doesn't hate the sorcerer. Like, from the moment he meets her, he's like, sorcerer are complex. Like, what we're doing to them. Like, in his mind, he's like, there's something more to them versus, like, all she's experienced at the hands of Reckoners is... Oh, yeah. Pain. So when she throws him out the window and he falls down into the crevasse and, and and like breaks himself, like she's she's hurting him. And so in this moment, part of this sheet moment is her having to accept his identity in an in order to heal both of them, in order to heal their relationship. Yeah. Well, but I also think it's really interesting, like, she broke him, right? And then he he was perfectly cured. And then it was, like, his determination to find her. Like, he, he basically fucks himself. He fucks himself up, right? And I thought that that was, like, a really interesting metaphor for how sometimes our obsessions 
are like our downfalls, right? Like the things that we feel that we are owed, the things that we think have been stolen from us or taken from us, the when we cling to the, the ways that we perceive the world has treated us unfairly, those are the things that make us bitter and twisted, not the things really other people do to us. I mean, maybe that's going too far, but... I don't know. I mean, isn't that the whole story of Icarus? And that might be the wrong character. Oh, you're he gets right. And flies too close That's to the sun. That's really interesting. You're totally right. Look at you, smarty pants. Mm. I Greek mythology. That's Greek mythology, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. I was like, I did that maybe. Well, and like in this case, it's his brother has sort of steered him wrong, right? He doesn't know what his brother's been up to. And Icarus, it's his father, right? Daedalus is the, is the, like inventor and they're going to escape or whatever. And his son kind of gets away from him and flies too close and melts it all off. And he, you know, plummets into the sea. But I do think it's like a really interesting point too, about how like blind trust in people in our family, when we don't really know what's going on with them, maybe doesn't lead to the greatest things ever happening. Well, blind trust in family and blind trust in faith, in faith, especially when the two are so intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, it's a really different I we talked about this on on our uh, in the podcast already, but it is a really different book than all the other books in the series. It feels different, it has a different voice almost, like it has a different structure. It's Yeah. I Cressley's doing something very clear here. And also, I mean, like there's something really fascinating about the clear religious messaging here and we are about to in the next iad book meet the primordial demon um you know and he won't have his book for two books but like when we meet the morior we're gonna we are we are literally gonna meet the king of hell god he said from which these demons were like spawned right yeah like they came from him so, and and we know this for a fact because when Thronos goes back to Pandemonium, Pandemonia, he can read all the demonish signs, which are, and like that's, that is Sian's entire, that's his entire realm. Yeah. So, interesting, what, what Cressley's doing is almost starting to give us, like, I don't know, we're starting to see hints at, the accession sort of blown out into a much larger conversation about good and evil. Well, and I thought it was really interesting in this, at the end, it's like Nyx and Morgana, is that her name? Um, Mm -hmm. And like Nyx turns to her and is like, like, and so it begins, right? And it's interesting too, because um, in the Bible, of course, it's like ends with like the apocalypse, right? And like this, the second coming. And then we literally have the coming of the Morior. So in some ways, it makes sense to me that this book feels like meditative, like a prayer almost, because something is coming. Well, and when that thing comes, everything changes. Yeah. I mean, like, it doesn't matter how many bricks Nyx has laid. They're ultimately Orion- will come and i mean i hope he will also come but <laughs> right the, the <laughs> oh. but he, ultimately orion will come and he with him 
Like they are the bringers of doom. Yeah. Right. But doom for who or for whom? Doom for whom? <laughs> I would really hate to be immortal right now. Like an actual yeah. per- human. I'd be like, fuck. Yeah. Well, you have. Yeah. And you have to assume at this point that he's coming for. Ultimately, he comes. They come for the province. But Nix doesn't know that. She can't see it. And that's what's getting interesting, too, because this is the book where she makes her play essentially, as, you know, to be a goddess, right? Like things are like oh, yeah. leveling up for her. And she's been the one who's been pulling the strings on all these people all along, explicitly, too, at the beginning of this book, right? Thronos, be in this place at this time so you can get captured. And that's how you're going to get Melanthe back, right? Presumably, this is something Nix could have told him any old time she wanted to in the past five centuries, so that's the part that's always been unclear to us because we never knew her, you know, her her end game. Yeah, we didn't right? know she was planning to be a goddess. Right. Well, and speaking of, I mean, do you guys want me to go conspiracy theory on this? Sure. Please. Before we do the okay. lock limb count, give it to us. Yes. Well, because, so Jen knows I have a murder wall because I've been like mapping out everything because I'm... I'm a nerd. Yeah, is this the episode where we're going to reveal the photographs of this murder wall? Yeah, we need pictures. <laughs> well, so one of the themes I know, so, you know, we talk about how could Nyx get her love story. And she mentions in this book that she will die and rise from the ashes. And when I listened to that, I totally missed it in my, like, first couple reads, I guess. But I thought about it. And there is literally in every book some form of death. And then of, a, you know, of a rising in the coupleship, whether it's, you know, like Conrad right. literally goes nuts, you know, and then he's brought from his mental state from by Naomi. And then uh, what's the last guy? McGreeve, you know, his he lost his. Oh, my God, I can't think of the word right now. His mind, his everything. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Sure, well, he, he lost, lost his, his like And, he, you know, there's there's a theme in every single book where a hero or a heroine you know, has like some part of them has died and they rise from the ashes because of their fated mate. And that hasn't happened with, from what we know from couples in the past, usually just like, hey, you know, my paranormal senses are going ding, 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 let's do this. But like, there's a lot of work for this. And I mean, Fury, she's going to have to, I don't know how the hell she's going to come back from whatever she's doing. She's going to need like a lot of therapy and like a lot of, (laughs) well, as we know, that's, that's always the angle that Cressley comes at is like therapy. (laughs) I'm fucking therapy. I mean, it's interesting because from the, I remember like way back in the first episode, we talked about Nyx and I said like, oh, well, she's the primordial Valkyrie and or rather Fury is the primordial Valkyrie. We we're talking about Fury. And then somebody online corrected me and said, Fury's not a Valkyrie. She's a Fury. So, I mean, like arguably Nyx is the primordial Valkyrie, which means there's a seat at the Moriar table for her. Yeah, right. Wasn't Fury one of the three when they caught Lothair when he was a kid? I think so. Wait, I'm sorry. Wasn't Fury the what? Remember, Lothair first meets Nyx. He's walking somewhere and he like gets caught by Nyx and two of her sisters. And I think Fury is one of them and Emma's mom is the other one. Yeah, I don't under I don't fully understand Fury. I don't under 
I'm told by listeners, high listeners, that she's a Fury and not a Valkyrie, but I don't quite understand, like, how, why those two things are different. <laughs> but I believe you. <laughs> I just think she's, I mean, I think it's like, it'll just, you know, it's, it's sad because this actually is, was supposed to be Monroe Day. And I feel like I was like, we would have had all these interesting other pieces, parts, right, to put together. But I am, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how it all turns out because I, I do think that the reason this book is really different is not just because it's ending act two, right? It's putting an, it's putting Torture Island to bed, right? And literally it's also putting like Sky, Sky Islands to bed. Like a lot of things come crashing down. And so it, it's of course going to be the thing that opens up movement three, but you know, I, I can't wait to see what's next. It's interesting because this sort of movement three question is thrown into a little bit of chaos for us in our minds by virtue of the fact that the Monroe book is not a Moriore book, right? She has four other Moriore sitting at the table now, if you count the dragon, which I do. <laughs> um, you know, I definitely, I mean, like, I don't think he gets a book, but like, my God, I wish that he would. Um, but the and instead of going forward, she's still like tying up loose ends from the past. So, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm desperate for Monroe for many, many, many reasons. Not the least of which is, is like, how does it play into right where we are right now? Movement three, yeah. So, I mean, it should before we do Lost Limbs, we should just say to everybody who's listening because we didn't say this when we recorded Jen, um, just the two of us, like Monroe is not coming. Um, not right now, at least. We've been told sometime later in the year. Um, Cressley put out a newsletter. You should all go to Cressley's website and sign up for her newsletter. And then you can get that information along with us. Or you should follow us on all forms of social media. And we will let you know when we have news. But if you share... Make sure you read it all the way because Sarah got mad at me one time because she mentioned you guys and I shared it, but she also put one of your books as like a must read. And I didn't get that far before I shared. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I, I got mad at you. <laughs> well, not really. You were like, way to drop the ball, Samantha. And I was like, I'm well, sorry. I, don't I got I'm... so excited. I think at that point. At that time, I was not a subscriber to the Cressley Cole newsletter. And then when somebody emailed me and was like, Cressley recommended one of your books, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, I did. Now here we are. Because she mentioned the podcast. And I got too excited. Oh, my God. She mentioned the <laughs> podcast. I was like, I need to f- retire to um, be in her book's fainting couch for a while so I can just like, <laughs> <laughs> woo. <laughs> It's so okay, fine. lost limbs, you guys. This is um, yeah. We need to we need to keep, get going, but um, all right. Well, I'm gonna start because I actually think that we need to include Thronos's foot from yes, the demon, and I think it was actually on there. Like I, I'm gonna go back and look, but I'm pretty is sure it, it might already be there. So yeah, because we knew and he was I coming, think we, and obviously I know that he doesn't technically lose anything, but we have to include include the like leap. From the window and all the broken bits. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then later on in that sort of looping where he is, she's like going to get crushed by a boulder, right? And God, he loses so many. Yeah. And it's, but his willingness to harm himself to save her. So I guess we're just going to count it once, even though no actual limbs were lost, but the soul was ready to lose those limbs. Was it, what was he losing? His feet? 
he was did his he, legs. He like ripped his off arm yeah. at one point. I mean, he makes I can't Lachlan. He makes him look like nothing. Like Lachlan chewed off his arm. Nice job. I'm like amateur Thronos, exactly. Yeah, Thronos does it over and over again. And then the more it happens, he's like, okay, cut off leg. Like it becomes like a to do list. Yeah. Um, yeah. Melanthe's tongue. Yeah. Tongue. Yeah. Felix, his head. Felix is the sorcerer. Eye, yeah. He's like kind of creepy. And Thronos is walking towards her. <laughs> that scene kills me. And he's just like, boop, you're done. There's a couple times where Thronos, I would argue, does some beheading as a romantic gesture. Um, <laughs> yes. Right? Because yes. she's impressed by it. She's in danger. And the fact that he can like behead and fight these demons is something that. You know, she's like, hmm, that's my man. So I think that we should definitely count those. Yeah, he does a lot of throat slicing with the claw on the top of his wing. I know. It yes. sounds like a lot. Ooh. <laughs> it's very aggressive. Um, do we count the carnage at the beginning of the book when they're escaping Torture Island? Mm, no, because no. it's too complicated. It's like a yeah. orgy of violence. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot happening. <laughs> That's so true. But yeah, I think that, that was the, it. That's what I had. I did have one question, though. Do you guys have any theories as to what escaped with them from the beast belly? Oh. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. We did not discuss Which this. was very Jonah and the whale, right? Another exactly. biblical story, right? The Bible is full of great stories. I mean, my theory, as you know, Samantha, as somebody who listens to the podcast, is that often Cressley puts things on the page just for, like, future use. Like, at some point, she may need yeah, a monster a thing here. that's escaped from the beast belly. I will say this. I have another piece of information that I have gleaned from somebody else in my life who knows, uh, who knows a little more about how Cressley – about Cressley's process – and apparently, Cressley also has a murder wall. That is confirmed. Mm, yes. And everything is planned through Nyx. Dang. Yeah. So. And Cressley's married, right? So there's hope for me with my murder wall. <laughs> As yes, I think so. Man, podcast over. Like, um, so. <laughs> what else can we that say? That is like. Under that is that is the information I got, and when I got it, I gasped aloud because I felt like I needed like extra air. <laughs> I got really excited yeah. about having access to this murder wall, which I'm sure I will never have. But if anybody you know lives near Cressley or gets an opportunity to like attend a party or function at her house, break in maybe. Could, like, I don't know. You know, break away and try and search for a bathroom. Go looking for a murder wall, and you know, Jen and I will pay you in romance novels and I don't accolades. Know, I'm not sure what. Yeah, Golden Girls bobbleheads or something. I have um three of the same Golden Girls sweatshirt I'll donate Sunburn Dorothy. There you go. <laughs> Great. Her, Great. Her face printed too red, so I got another one. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's actually kind of amazing. But it doesn't surprise me because of the way all this stuff, like... Um... But it has to be, right? So, like, because if you, if you think of all the times that she's left an item on the table, yeah. right? The Thrain's key, the, like, all the, like, little... The little things that she can ultimately bring in at the end and use. Having like some beastie escaped from the weird demon's belly in this book is a really valuable thing. Sure. And it's such a like, you know, 
like off the cuff comment. Like it's not, unless you're looking for stuff, which I was, I think it totally would have slipped my mind. Well, and what do we know about that beast? What do we know about it? It very much no. reminded me, can I tell you this, of the Matrix. Do you guys, like the first Matrix? Yes. Right? So Totally. It's, I, I had that same feel. Right? Because you're like plugged in and like essentially this beast is feeding on you and it's feeding on immortals. There's other immortals trapped in there. And because their energy is essentially like nonstop. And so the... But we don't know what this beast is. No. Mm-mm. Just something in. Do we even know how they got in, in there? Hell. No, it was a portal. Nick's. No, it wasn't a portal. It was a. It was one of those accidental like places in hell in the in Pandemonia. But Nick's uh, whispers where she is, where they are into Thronos's ear. Yeah, and he is terrified, and that's all we get. So he knows where they are. Well, and that's when we think he traces, right? Because we don't think he makes it through the portal. Portal. We think he traces. Whoa, couldn't say that word. Yeah. Yes, we do. Yeah, that part yeah. was anyway. Yeah. If anybody, that is a great question, though, Samantha. And if any of the our listeners have an idea as to what escapes the beast with them, please hit us up on Twitter at Faded Mates, on Instagram at Faded Mates Pod. You can leave a. A comment on this episode at fatedmates.net. Um, Samantha, tell everybody how they can find you. You can find me at books by SS, like a ship, Jackson, J A X O N, on Twitter. And then I think my Instagram's the same. You guys, you know who escaped with them? It was probably Keanu Reeves. It's fine. I, yeah, where did he come from? <laughs> I was like, I know the truth. He unplugged from the Matrix, he took the right colored pill, and now he's John Wick. It's fine, everybody. Fine. Uh, Samantha, it's always awesome hanging out with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. And uh, we can't wait to read your book. Me either. We will send you love letters to your P.O. Box. (laughs) Oh, thanks. That's so nice. (laughs) All right, everybody. Um, We'll see you next time on Faded Mates. He's he's attractive. He's like gone back to his speed ways. He has some funky facial hair though, y'all. Shh. It's not that he can't grow a full beard, it's that it's growing up the side of his face in some interesting patterns. <laughs> <laughs>